This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically-minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Rohatsu is the time of year traditionally said to be the anniversary of Buddha's enlightenment. And it has become the occasion for an annual intensive session in which we strive to make Shakyamuni's realization our own. And it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the stories that come down to us about Shakyamuni, many of which, of course, are highly embellished or mythologized, being very hard to sort out with any certainty too much about the historical Buddha. But it's instructive to look at the myths that surround him almost as much as it is important to try to understand who he was as an individual. To begin with, we are usually told that Shakyamuni was born into a royal family and grew up in a palace in a sheltered life of wealth and privilege. And I think of an important part of the story right there is that he is presented to us as beginning in the very place that most of us spend our lives striving to get to. Most people look for a life of wealth and privilege and the security that they provide. And they spend their whole life trying to get there. Well, that's where he started out. And it seemed like he grew up enjoying it very much, thank you. Until uh, one day he happened to take a ride against his father's wishes outside the palace walls where he is said to have seen an old man, a dying man, and a corpse. 
and that this was the first time he had ever encountered any sign of sickness, old age, and death. So having been sheltered so thoroughly from these things, and we can say again that the myth of him growing up sheltered from a knowledge of sickness, old age, and death is a parable for our own state of denial, the way we pass most of our lives denying as thoroughly as we can that those things are going to apply to us. And when the young prince, according to this legend, first encountered them, well, it really put him off his feet, and he uh, could no longer enjoy the privileged, sheltered life he had had before. And he left the palace resolving one way or another to come to terms with this new reality. And what what does that really mean? You see, what's what is the problem posed by sickness, old age, and death? What kind of problem is that? What kind of answer could there be to those things? He was certainly shocked to see that this was part of life. That shock propelled him forward, but with, in a way, I would say the same kind of confused motivation that we all have where we feel like we're going to get some kind of solution to what it is to be human. Again, according to legend, he first consulted different teachers or masters of his time, and it, in the um, copy of the transmission of the lamp that I have, uh, that translation, it says, first he studied with a master who taught the samadhi of non-action, whatever that is, uh, for three years, and found that didn't work. So he gave it up. <laughs> and then he studied with the master of the samadhi of non-thinking. Did that for three years and also found it didn't work, that that wasn't liberation. And he gave that up. Now it's not so clear what those practices were, of course. But let's suppose that one way or another they are attempts to master the mind, to keep the mind still, or to make the mind empty, or to make the mind calm. One way or another we all try to study with those masters in our practice. We try 
at least in the, the level of a curative fantasy in our unconscious, we try to imagine that we're going to get our mind into some kind of state of peace, which will be permanent and imperturbable, and that that will be the way we find relief from the problems of sickness and old age and death. We will create this immovable mind, immovable empty mind. It's a great combination. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say that probably his experience was not unlike ours, and that if you practice very diligently in that manner, you certainly can find ways to create quite unusual and blissful states of mind in yourself. Drugs help. Um, but that those, those states are not permanent, and that they don't relieve the existential questions that drove him to practice. So he put those aside. And then he did something that sounds very strange to me. Uh, Having tried to subdue his desires and his thoughts and finding that that didn't work, the legends say that he then became an extreme ascetic as if he decided, well, if, I, if the problem is not in my mind, it must be in my body. And he subjected himself to severe ascetic disciplines. Uh, and in the legend, you know, sort of saying, subsisting on one grain of rice a day, you know, that kind of thing. Until he, his body was reduced practically to that of a skeleton. One can only say that he seems to have lost sight of the original problem. Um, There's a certain kind of... um, If you're afraid of death, act like you're dead already, you know? (laughs) So nothing will happen to you, eh? But there is a way in which I think that we all inevitably uh, recapitulate in our practice or our lives some version of these kinds of curative fantasies in which we feel like first the mind is the problem, then the body is the problem, and that our, the answer in some way is going to be in subjection, uh, subjecting the, these entities to total, uh, mastery or total extirpation of, uh, desire or vulnerability. some way a practice that says I will learn to endure any amount of physical hardship 
and then I will be impervious to anything that life can throw at me. And I think that there's a strong element of that idea in a lot of Zen practice. There's certainly a tendency to stress endurance, a capacity to sit with and through a great deal of physical pain, to live in conditions of very minimal physical comfort, as if we're going to get the body once and for all to ignore the difference between pleasure and pain. I think in some way or another we we all have to enact a version of that in our lives and see where it gets us or where it doesn't get us. In a way, we can't be told that it's uh, fruitless. We have to find it out for ourselves, just what mastery and endurance will do and not do for us. Well, it's said that Buddha, after he practiced his starvation diet for six years and was practically near death, he realized that he must have made a wrong turn somewhere and left that practice and uh, also, according to legend, was found and revived by a woman in a nearby village who took pity on him and uh, fed him and restored him to health. And that he was willing, finally, to take sustenance and to be cared for and nurtured back to health by this woman. And that it was only then that he was able to sit down and say, there must be a middle way between self-indulgence and self-destructive asceticism. That the truth has to be someplace in the middle there. That I've been the life of the palace and the life of the starving ascetics both is missing something. We've got to find the middle ground. But I think it's worth pausing, too, at that little piece of the story where he allows himself to be nurtured and restored back to life by a young woman. Uh, I think it's important that that piece of caretaking and being cared for uh, is in the story. It's uh, the kind of thing that we often omit. Uh, we often omit thinking that we need. It's the kind of thing that we often want to bypass with our practice. 
that simple need to be taken care of. So after he was restored to health, it is said he sat down under a tree and just said, I will sit here until I settle this once and for all for myself. What's the problem? What's the answer? And it's said that he sat for six days and nights continuously. And on the seventh, after sitting all night, he looked up and saw the morning star rising in the sky. And looking at that star, something happened. Now some old texts say he looks at the star and exclaims, In this moment I and all beings attain Buddhahood together. Another version uh, by Harada Roshi, which I like, uh, he looks up, sees the star and says, Oh, that's me. (laughs) That's nice. But when I try to think for myself, what is the essence of the realization in that moment? And I try to be honest for myself about what have I experienced that could correspond to that? What uh, of that have I, do I actually share with Buddha? It would be something like realizing that I and everyone and everything are as perfect as that star, just as we all are, just as it is. That you would just look up at that star and see it's just perfectly being a star, right? Nothing missing. And I'm just like that. I'm just myself. And you're just like that. And everything is just like that. Just the star, just the person, just the plant, an animal, other people. Everything is just completely being itself. With no problem, nothing missing, nothing to be added. And after practically killing himself to solve the problem of life and death, he looks and sees how the star has solved it. Right? It just is. Right? It just is. And that there's some deep realization that he too can be like that star and just be right? as he is. Now, many of us, when we will we sit for a long time, will have moments like that, where 
everything is just perfect as it is. There may be little moments, just lasting a breath, when everything is just at rest. There is no struggle anymore. Or they may feel like big revelations. But the real question um, for me uh, is, uh, as a teacher is, uh, what happens next? What difference does it make that you have a moment like that? See, one of the things that happens when you get known as a Zen teacher is that you get called up by a lot of strangers who, wa- who want to come urgently often to tell you about an experience that they've had. Um, and people come and they'll tell you if you let them, you know. <laughs> you know, and I, I try to let them. It's, it's, it's interesting, you know. Um, you know, they'll show up and they'll tell you some pretty wild experiences, you know. And sometimes I, you know, I listen to them, you know, and I say, wow, I wish I had had an experience like that. You know, it's pretty, you know. Sun and the you know, whole thing, you know, big, big white lights and everything. Right? Uh, but then, you know, and they want to hear that this is somehow a valid experience, that this is real, which is already tells you that there's something wrong, right? I mean, if they need you to tell them that, you know, something next, some next step hasn't happened. And so I, you know, I always try to listen to the whole experience, and then I say, and, and, and then, how has this uh, played out in your life? How, how are you living now? And um, unfortunately, in most cases, what, uh, at best, what you hear is, well, my life went back to the way it was before. Um, and for them, it's like... Um, somebody who's told you they've had this wonderful trip to Venice. You know, and they'd never been there before. And they were just amazed at how beautiful it was and how incredible the food was. And they never saw art like that. And they here, here's a postcard. This is my souvenir. Uh, but they've come back to the same life they've always lived, which is no more Venice-like than it was before, right? It's a, it's a place they saw once, but now it's over. And sometimes that's quite, you know, Extreme. I mean, I. And it can take the form of you know. I've I've heard people with fully some slight exaggeration, sort of saying, you know, I had this incredible mystical experience. Uh, but you know, I still live in the basement of my parents' house. I don't go out much. I don't have any friends. I I support myself playing online poker, and when I save up enough money, I spend it on hookers and drugs. <laughs> Let me tell you again about this incredible mystical experience I have. <laughs> um, so the real point of uh, these things is sort of what happens next. And in Buddha's case, we will give him some credit that a lot happened next. right? But we have to try to understand then how his teaching or how our practice is supposed to carry realization forward into our, in our life. And I think that 
what we have to see is that is how much of our ordinary way of living has been built up assuming that there's something wrong, something missing, something we need to get or something we need to get rid of. That practically our whole life, our whole way of being is geared to dealing with those issues. And that if we have this moment where we feel like there's nothing wrong and nothing missing and nothing needs fixing, well, it's going to make unemployed a lot of our previous habits and preoccupations. And the question really is, how much does the, do we follow through in really seeing we don't have to engage in all the things we used to when we assume there was something wrong? Now, the Buddha's approach to that follow-through is in the Eightfold Path and in the Life of Precepts and in the Life of a Mendicant Monk. See, what he basically lays out for his followers is he says, if, uh, he's basically saying, if there is nothing missing, if there is nothing wrong, and that that's true for everyone in every condition, regardless of whether they are healthy or sick, young or old, rich or poor, uh, that's the case. If all those conditions of life are not the point, then live a life that is, is simple and not about striving to get any of those things that we are normally after. So it's like Jesus telling his followers to uh, be like the lilies of the field. Right? Save up nothing for tomorrow. Don't strive to get anything whatsoever. Be content with whatever is given to you, day by day by day. And so he creates a life, a form of life. I mean, to some extent, that whole culture of uh, asceticism and uh, the homeless monk is part of uh, the culture that he's, he's living in. But he says, live this life of simplicity and homelessness. And that life itself, every day, will be an affirmation of the realization that nothing is missing. Right? He's saying, that's the walk to walk if you were going to believe the talk. Right? And... And that that model is what is followed to this day by certain strands of Southeast Asia, particularly Buddhists, who are forest mendicants, bhikkhus, who live a life in which um, they live on only what's given and put in their banking bowl each day, and they have no permanent residence. 
But in order to do that, you need to live in a certain kind of culture that in, in fact holds and maintains people who do that. Buddhism, as it spread into China and Japan, said, we're going to have that realization manifest differently. It's going to, we're going to regulate it into monasteries, and the monastic life itself is going to be the affirmation of that realization. It's going to be a life of simplicity in work and meditation, but one in which we own nothing and strive for nothing, but cherish this moment just as it is. And for Dogen, the identity of practice and realization is saying that this life, as we're living it, is the fulfillment of realization. Now, how do we bring that up to date for us in a lay life in New York City today? What do we do with any realization we have of the that we, just like that star, are perfect as we are? See, I think that there's real psychological work to be done in seeing how much our daily life is geared to not believing that. how much we feel something is missing, what we strive for, what we think is wrong with ourselves, and how much fixing and avoiding is built into our, our identity. And the next level of that is also to have great compassion for ordinary people like ourselves whose lives are built around feelings of inadequacy and striving because that's just the way human beings are. It's what we're prone to. And we're not going to really extirpate that any more than we're going to extirpate any other kind of thought or desire that will always in some way be with us. So our practice is a practice of deep self-acceptance, whatever level we can take that down to. And as we sit in seshin, it means accepting the difficulty we may have physically, the difficulties we may have emotionally or mentally as we sit, just looking into this mirror of this is me, this is me, this is me. But what, what in the end do we say about Buddha's original problem, right, of seeing the old man, <coughs> the sick man, the corpse? Right? What kind of answer did he come up to, to those problems? 
are we prepared to say with him that those figures too are stars. <laughs>